Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to One Hour at a Time, a show about um, substance use, misuse, and addiction, the treatment of it, um, and how we uh, look to public policy, workforce development, and other issues related to substance use, misuse, and dependence. And today, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Mary Ryan Woods, and I am the Chief Executive Officer for Westbridge Community Services, an organization that treats people with um, major mental illness and substance use disorders. And I am very pleased to introduce to you Dr. Mark Green, who is a psychiatrist, American Board of um, Psychiatry and Neurology certified, and he's also a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Um, welcome, Dr. Green. Hello. And I would like to begin by um, asking you to t- tell us and our listeners how you got interested in the field of addiction. Sure. Sure. So um, I'm not sure you mentioned, I'm also the medical director at Westbridge, which is how you and I know each other. Um, I originally um, got interested in addictions. I suppose it, it, it grew out of just a general medical um, interest. I entered medicine already interested in just the general well-being of um, people. So I was working in nursing homes and um, in um, community care settings as a um, mental health worker um, prior to and during medical school. And by the time I got involved in general medicine after my qualification in London, I wanted a very broad um, perspective and approach on people's well-being. But I did, aside, uh, alongside that social interest, have a great interest in neurobiology and had done an um, undergraduate degree in London in, in that. So addictions really served as a wonderful crossover between the social and political interests I had, as well as the um, neuroscientific. I came over to New York City and did my psychiatry residency there at um, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And after that, did a fellowship in addictions psychiatry. So there's a separate board certification in that. And then while working in methadone programs and um, the public health department in New York City, I um, also did three years of research in the biology of, neuro- of addictions at Rockefeller University, which was, if not the birthplace, at least the, um, the incubator for methadone maintenance treatment. And since then, I've tried to have one or more fingers in some research pie while trying to get a more um, person-centered and um, holistic approach to treatment of addictions, which is eventually how Westbridge caught my um, interest, as it really has a broad, thoughtful perspective on the treatment of 
dual disorders um, and the whole person in their functional context. So that's a, that's how I got interested in addictions. And I believe you're also currently an instructor at Harvard Medical School? Yep. So that's um, I'm able to teach medical students and psychiatry residents um, in the treatment of dual disorders and addictions and um, see a bunch of residents in in that context. Well, I'd like to begin our discussion today by asking you to provide us with a little of of the history of opiate replacement therapy and how is it different from methadone maintenance. And um, if you could just begin by giving us a little history. Sure. Um, It's a fascinating history because it really touches on a lot of the social perspectives and stigma and simplification that goes on in the thought about addictions because opiates were used from the beginning of the 19th century really for the treatment of um, everything from dysentery to screaming children um, and um, there were widespread um, addictions and difficulties with um, opiates and the only way to, the predominant way of treating people with addictions were either incarceration or um, placement in the large modified treatment farms like the famous one at Lexington, Kentucky. And the the second approach was, I suppose, based in psychodynamics and a very caring and thoughtful, perhaps, um, and analytic approach to treating the person. Most of these treatments failed, and the rates of relapse were extremely high. And um, there's wonderful books written about the the history of this um, period um, by both people who um, continue to relapse and by historians. Then in the early 60s, a group at Rockefeller who was interested in metabolism and the study of metabolism and really where um, the the predominant research on lipid metabolism, um, which is so important today for control of obesity, um, was carried out. The the chief proponent in that research was um, Vincent Dole, and he was approached by a woman called Mary Nicewinder, who was a psychoanalyst and who had worked at Lexington, Kentucky, um, before moving to New York and was passionately devoted to the treatment of people with opiate addictions and desperately looking for some kind of approach which would be better than um, what she'd experienced, which was very high relapse rates despite enormous compassion and skill. So she approached Vincent Dole, who was um, not only a wonderful scientist, but a wonderfully compassionate man, who had been involved in the treatment in the consideration of opiate dependency because at that time New York was suffering a terrible epidemic of addiction and there was widespread concern. And the two of them teamed up with a medical student um, at the time, Mary Jean Creek from Cornell University, to look at various um, approaches to the treatment of addiction and use the same metabolic perspective that Vincent Dole had applied in other metabolic conditions such as lipid 
lipid disorders, um, so that he thought what he saw in people with opiate addictions was that they were no longer using to to have great fun. Um, the addictions had stopped becoming um, fun. They were now using just to stave off sickness and get themselves back to a state of feeling normal. And he realized that they were trying to repair a deficit in their metabolism and thought that if he could find the right drug to provide a steady infusion of replacement opiate, these people might feel normal again. Methadone fulfilled such requirements because it was orally available instead of injection, um, it was long-acting, and um, it was um, relatively safe. And so he hospitalized people with addictions, which in and of itself was a huge um, step forward um, and strike against the stigma of the times, and treated them with escalating doses of methadone until they felt right. And somewhere between 80 and 120 milligrams a day, these people with addictions stopped feeling the preoccupation, stopped feeling the um, cravings and repeated use, and really um, felt reported feeling normal. And many of those original patients are now, well, now they're probably approaching 80 years old because this was 1964, um, but... Um, I've met some of them who remain healthily on methadone treatment. Interestingly, um, despite those studies, we still, um, the average dose of methadone in clinics is still about 47 milligrams, um, appallingly low. And um, Why is that's that? Sorry? Why is that? Why is that? I think it's um, a, a, a resistance. I think it's a, an issue of ignorance, um, a failure to read the original studies, which showed that kind of the importance of those levels. Um, and I think it's a stigma from society which emphasizes addictions as a moral deficit um, and sees the replacement medications such as methadone or suboxone, which we'll talk about later, as um, a duplicate, as a um, substitute for the addiction which is still dirty in some way. And people with addictions internalize that shame and stigma too. So they also come into the clinic saying, I want to keep my, load, my dose low and I want to get off this stuff as soon as possible. Um, I think in traditional 12-step um, fellowships, there's a similar um, feeling sometimes um, from... Um, so that people with opiate addictions are, are encouraged to be pure and be straight of all drugs and get rid of any crutches. Um, so, so I think because of that, doses have stayed um, so low that outcomes have suffered considerably. Um, getting back to the history, though... Um, you know, even after the development of methadone maintenance programs, the stigma and um, governmental pressure was enormous so that multiple methadone sites, were, methadone maintenance clinics were closed down and threatened um, by the DEA. And it took a very long time for methadone, really under the pioneering 
work of the three people that I've mentioned um, to gain enough acceptance to be seen as a um, medicine for the replace, for the treatment of people who have a deficit, uh, in many ways a metabolic or hormonal deficit um, in important body physiology systems. Um, so in the last few decades, while methadone maintenance treatment has become very accepted, um, public, fin- public support, public financial support has not really kept pace. Um, and so clinics rely a lot on just the medicine and don't provide the panoply of psychosocial treatments um, and support um, that are important for people's recovery. So methadone clinics are often grim places, not always, but often grim places, um, which people with addictions don't feel like going to, um, family members don't feel like going to, and which um, heighten the public um, antipathy towards the clinic. So sadly, um, it's estimated that less than um, 15 or 20 percent of people with an opiate addiction, I think 20 percent actually, of people with an opiate addiction are in the uh, in the methadone maintenance clinics that they might benefit from. Right, and when we talk about um, methadone maintenance and opiate replacement, I think people tend to think about heroin addiction, when in fact, um, it's my understanding that the, that the majority of the people um, who who are opiate dependent are so as a result of prescribed medication. And we will talk a little bit more about that when we come back from break. Um, where we will be joined once again by Dr. Mark Green speaking about opiate replacement therapy. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Inner Health Through Homeopathy, hosted by Melissa Birch, CCH, with Dr. Tim Stryker. This show features a weekly discussion about homeopathy, a holistic approach to health care which treats ailments by bringing the entire body into balance. Homeopathy encompasses and examines the makeup of the entire person instead of focusing solely on a disease or ailment. The healing process involves physical, mental, and emotional changes which come from a wellness within. Homeopathic remedies go far beyond an alleviation of symptoms. They can restore harmony to the body and open paths to a higher level of awareness. Each week, Melissa Birch, CCH, explores a different health issue and individual healing processes with Tim Stryker, MD. 
Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for inner health through homeopathy. Achieve exceptional levels of health and fitness through integrating the very best in fitness, nutrition, and healing. Tune into Total Fitness with fitness, nutrition, and healing coaches Catherine Kerrigan and James Williams. Each week, get inspired to exercise, eat and rest in harmony with your body's needs, and take advantage of effective natural healing methods with in-depth, cutting-edge information and advice. Get fit, get healthy, get motivated, and get real with Total Fitness, broadcasting every Friday at 7 a.m. on Voice America Health & Wellness. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Uh, we were talking about opiate replacement therapy, and we were just discussing um, the causes for opiate addiction. And Dr. Green, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what causes opiate addiction. Wow. Well, what causes it is one of those questions which gets to um, such complexity. The um, the easy answer is opiates cause opiate addiction. But like every complex situation with a simple answer, that would be the wrong answer. The, obviously, you need opiates to render someone opiate dependent. But there are plenty of people who use opiates um, on an ongoing basis who don't develop an addiction. For example, um, many of the people in Vietnam who served um, experimented with heroin to an extent where they became dependent and had considerable problems um, in the uh, on the field. However, when they came back to America, many of them just stopped using drugs and had good outcomes. It is possible that those people then succumbed to other addictions or perhaps reverted to heroin addiction later on in their life. But nevertheless, Lots of people never used again. Similarly, there's people who use opiates on an ongoing basis for the treatment of pain and do not develop an addiction. So, um, and that might mean that they're able to stop the drug or it might mean that um, they don't develop particular behaviors which we think of as um, part of addiction. So, the idea of an addiction involves the involves more than just the development of tolerance and withdrawal. Um, tolerance meaning increasing doses of the drug are necessary for the same effect or to stave off withdrawal. Or withdrawal, which is a particular syndrome of runny nose, aches and pains, misery, Um, high blood pressure, higher pulse, sweating, insomnia, um, and did I say nausea and diarrhea? You did Um, say nausea. And um, which you think of as um, the withdrawal, 
when someone that can't obtain the drug dose that they need. But in, a dif- in, a, in addition, people develop addictive behaviors, which is the preoccupation for the next use, the ongoing use despite problems in numerous realms of their lives, um, continued use despite objections of others, um, and ongoing deterioration and the erosion of um, all the spheres of living that we think of as, uh, as, as constituting health, physical, spiritual, um, mental, social, family, addiction eats into all of those areas. So what is it that also makes people um, succumb to an addiction as opposed to just a dependency? There's the drug, and then there's the person who's taking it, um, and there's the context in which they're taking it. So one person may be genetically unlucky enough to respond with particular liking to an opiate or that the opiates seem to soothe them, soothe their stress in a way which it might not do for another person. Um, And at the same time, the context in which you take a drug is crucial. So one person might receive high-dose opiates in hospital while while rehabbing a leg injury, and the feeling of the opiates is very different from the feeling that they'd get if they were um, at a party and someone said, take this, and it was in the context of having a good time. And those experiences are encoded differently in the brain. The, the extent to which they're rewarding in the brain is very different. And so the memory that you lay down, um, which helps the person, the memory you lay down is different. So the causes, therefore, are the drug, the personality or the person, and the context. Um, in a nutshell, all drugs of abuse stimulate the reward circuits um, in a little part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, um, which, in which dopamine is a very key um, molecule. And the point of this circuit is to tell the organism to do it again um, or um, motivate it to repeat this behavior, which seems in some way... Um, to have some advantage to it. Um, and it also um, um, highlights the memory circuits which will burn in place the how I did this, how I got to this drug, um, and who I did it with, which later you see in terms of cues and triggers for potential relapse. So... There's this system with the nucleus accumbens, which um, is influential on the memory circuits. Um, it's also influential on the decision-making circuits so that um, some, the organism gets biased towards short-term feeling of gratification as opposed to a long-term goal. So you can see this in animals and primates. You can see it in humans. Um, so, and you can, so, so someone might choose a, 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 um, a shot of heroin 
um, now in deference to $1,000 in a week. Um, and the, the decision-making circuitry in the frontal lobes of the brain um, are shifted by opiate dependency and, in fact, all dependency. The other system which is very important for the neurobiological factors in addiction is the stress hormone circuit. So opiates have a very special place in our lives. They're not just painkillers, but they're psychic painkillers. They're the drugs that make us feel socially bonded to somebody. They're the, um, they're the drugs in our brain because, um, which make us feel um, that things are okay and manageable. So we produce our own opioids in our own brain, the endogenous opioids like beta-endorphin which might surge when we're in a car crash and we don't want to be overcome by pain. We have to get our child out. So opioids come to the rescue there and allow you to focus on the task at hand. Um, so they're very important and old evolutionary, evolutionarily old um, systems which soothe and calm and make us feel okay. Well, if you pour in um, an external source of this stuff, these uh, endorphins, say by shooting heroin several times a day, the brain no longer needs to produce so much. And so when you stop the use, say you stop shooting up some heroin, um, your stress hormone systems are on fire and stress can... Um, very quickly become overwhelming and things that might be um, might not be stressful to, for one person or in fact for the same person before they ever developed an opiate dependency might now be um, very overwhelming and almost demand that they rebalance their system by taking some more heroin. Methadone and suboxone, buprenorphine, which we haven't yet mentioned, but which works similarly to methadone, provides that steady state. It's almost like a, um, um, it's almost like an insulin infusion um, for a um, system that is now depleted and unable to produce its own. Um, what causes addiction? There are certain people who are born with opioid systems which are um, more easily depleted. So perhaps they're more stressed out during their lives or, or perhaps they are... Uh, and there are other people who have genes which are very novelty-seeking. So they go looking for drugs and find them very exciting very early. Um, and I think all of these come to play and intertwine to produce an addiction or an addictive behavior later on in life. And we are still just really learning about addictions and what causes them. And we certainly will not find the answer in today's show or in any of the upcoming shows as well. But there are many theories that we could discuss at a later time. Um, we will be taking a break and we will come back and talk a little bit about the stigma, myths, and discrimination that revolve around opiate dependency. 
Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The true meaning of your dreams doesn't have to be a mystery. Join host Bob Haas, author and pioneer in dream science, to understand what your dreams mean and how they impact your daily life. Bob and his panel of experts from the International Association for the Study of Dreams will provide facts about dreams and discuss techniques of translating your own dreams and how you can use them for your mental and physical well-being. Dreamtime will further explore the research and science of dreaming and deliver a powerful comprehension of the function of dreaming. Listen live to Dreamtime with Bob Haas every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network and discover the science behind your dreams. Again, that's every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. You gotta Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hosted by Kim Hahn founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood. Conceive On Air with Kim Hahn, celebrating the creation of families. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We are talking about opiate addiction and opiate replacement therapy with Dr. Mark Green, the medical director for Westbridge Community Services. And we would like to begin to talk a little bit about the stigma, myths, and discrimination that people who are opiate dependent um, experience. And I think one of the um, myths is that opiate dependent people are heroin users who are strung out on the street and robbing stores and banks and, and local neighborhoods to support their their addiction, when in fact uh, heroin addicts are a small percentage of uh, people who are opiate dependent. And um, Dr. Green, could you talk a little bit about the other group of folks that become opiate Well, dependent? sure. Um, I can. It's, a, it's, it's always been so. Um, so back in the day, um, 100 years ago, there was no heroin. Um, 
Is that quite true? No, let's say 120 years ago. Um, but there are plenty of opioid-dependent people who had been addicted, uh, become addicted to morphine um, and um, through the treatment of pain. And unfortunately, given, the, um, given some of the individual and genetic and developmental risks that I spoke of um, in the last segment, some people do develop um, opioid dependencies just inadvertently through the treatment of um, pain. And any opioid that is used in a fun context um, initially, um, and um, particularly by young people who are excited and novelty-seeking and can lose control, any opioid can lead to the, court, to the development of dependency. So if you look at the monitoring the future um, data from high school kids um, in, uh, nationwide, um, marijuana is way up there, but um, I think second and third places, or fourth, no, and Ritalin I think is second, but then the, the, the next places are taken by um, opioids that we all have in our, or many of us have in our um, bathroom closets. Vicodin, um, or hydrocodone, I should say, um, and um, oxycodone, you know, or Percocet, as its um, trade name goes. And then, so those drugs are used a great deal. Um, and then, of course, the famous ones from the last couple of decades was Oxycontin, um, which is also oxycodone, same as Percocet, but they can pack an awful lot of pills into one smaller pill. So an Oxycontin 80 um, would have, let's see, um, 16 Percocet tablets in it, um, or the equivalent potency of, eight, of, eight, of 16 Percocet tablets. And when that was developed, the idea was that it would be a nice slow-release tablet which would ooze out and provide pain relief over the course of 8 to 12 hours. Well, um, simply by chewing that drug, you get the immediate release of 16 Percocets. And then people um, can be exposed to extremely high doses of opioids in a, in a, uh, on a frequent basis. And unfortunately, large numbers of um, the population, particularly in the Northeast and the Appalachian, along in the Appalachia um, region, um, became dependent on opiates through the um, abuse of a drug which was marketed very aggressively um, uh, under the myth um, that it wouldn't cause dependency um, in the, at the rate that, say, other painkillers had. Um, Purdue Pharma uh, you know, has come under a great deal of criticism and sanction um, as this, um, as this um, epidemic of OxyContin dependency um, has really skyrocketed. When I ran the, uh, when I was medical director at the uh, methadone program in Vermont, um, the vast, the majority of our participants there um, were dependent on prescription pill opioids. Very few um, used heroin. In fact, it was so distant from the sites of high-quality heroin um, 
Baltimore, Boston, New York, um, that it was more cost-effective um, and he got a better high from using OxyContin much more reliably um, than um, heroin. So many more people were abusing OxyContin and drugs like that. So it is a, it is a myth that we think about opiate addicts um, using heroin. The other myth is that, or using heroin exclusively, the other myth is of the um, burned out, um, strung out, skinny addict on the street stealing and robbing. Sure, there are some people um, with opiate addiction who would fulfill that um, stereotype. Um, and there are others who have the finances to not get into a, such a state or who have the self-regulation um, and perhaps social and family connections to not get in such a state um, who maintain very high levels of professionality and um, careers. For example, um, the Prime Minister of England, Margaret, the ex-Prime Minister of England, Margaret Thatcher's personal physician, um, was struck off uh, his long-standing 30-year opiate dependency. A prominent writer for the British Medical Journal, who, who I enjoyed reading for a decade, um, died of an overdose um, at the age of 60 after 30 or 40 years of heroin, of morphine addiction. Um, and was it Dick Cheney's personal physician or um, someone at George Washington, I think the head of the Department of Medicine there, um, also um, is, uh, was recently sanctioned for um, his loss of control of prescription opioids. But all of these people maintain very high levels of professionality. And people do return to that even if they've reached pretty terrible stages in their life um, with appropriate treatment. Well, so in the methadone... Of, sorry? Right, and right, and that's one of, I think, the benefits of opiate replacement therapy is that people do stabilize and they go back to work, they go back to paying taxes, they mm-hmm. go back to being, you know, healthy and functional um, people in society. Absolutely. And, and so that the, I think... One of the, the myths that I've experienced is that if you're if you're on an opiate replacement drug, then you're not abstinent, which means you're not really sober. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be some of the the stigma and discrimination that people experience um, when they do take opiate replacement therapy. Absolutely, and you raise a very important point. The the treatment of opiate dependency really extends way beyond just it being about taking the opiate. Um, people who are embroiled in addictive lifestyles, um, particularly ones which are illicit um, and heavily um, criminalized, um, end up with um, end up going underground and exposed to a lot of travails of poverty. So, in the, in the um, intravenous drug abusing population um, that might start at a opiate treatment facility, perhaps 80% of them um, might test positive for hepatitis C. And at different stages, um, you know, 20 to 50% um, have been um, HIV positive. And the treatment with an opioid replacement, such as methadone or suboxone, essentially eliminates that risk, which is good not just for the person, but also for society at large, um, so that the spread of HIV and hepatitis C is dramatically um, curtailed. 
as well as the general health of the individual so that they can undergo the treatment that they might need. Similarly, rates of arrests um, plummet. So um, by perhaps 100-fold after people are enrolled successfully in methadone maintenance treatment. Actually, the figures uh, from the 70s um, research was 200-fold. Um, but the, uh, so people just stop getting arrested and can then begin to build on their strengths, um, rekindle healthy peer, peer groups, find some health, some self-esteem, get back into the workforce, um, and become or return to an extremely productive um, and proud life um, where they're giving back extensively, not only in taxes, um, but um, in compassion and care, or not. Some just go back to being, um, working whatever job they, they wish. Um, and uh, you know, so it doesn't have to be some wonderful, you know, spiritually giving, spiritual giving back. People just return to the workforce so that you and I would never know. Um, and, um, you know, in New York City, in the methadone treatment facility I worked at, um, there are many people coming in off hours who are, who are very notable um, people within the community um, that I was very surprised when I first met them in the uh, clinic. But their stories of heroin addiction were decades old. Um, the other myth that puts people off um, opioids, opioid replacement treatment, is we mentioned the, the idea that it's dirty or just substituting one drug for another, which in my opinion is just silly um, because, you know, treatment isn't just about delivering someone to some higher enlightened state of purity. It's about saving lives. It's about helping decrease misery. It's about reducing arrests and HIV and hepatitis C. There's, there's ramifications for the individual and society at large. And um, when people say, oh, it's, it's just substituting it to one drug for another, it seems so, so small-minded. Um, but the other, the other aspects of, the other myths that you hear is that it rots your bones or, or that, it get, that, it, that you can never get off it. And, and in fact, people do come down, if they wish, um, successfully off their opioids. It doesn't rot your bones. It doesn't rot your teeth. Um, people return to good health with these treatments. Um, and everything has its side effects. Um, but oh, by and large, this is a profoundly safe and successful treatment with remarkably few side effects. And that's especially true if you are being treated by a reputable physician or clinic and that they're, they are medically managing your opiate dependence as well as you're getting some type of counseling uh, that, that, I'm sorry, that uh, coincides with your opiate replacement um, medication as well but because the combination of both has proven to be the most effective treatment, um, both behavioral health counseling, outpatient counseling, residential counseling, self-help, um, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, in conjunction with opiate replacement therapy has proven to be the most effective. And when we come back, we'll talk about new directions in the treatment of opiate dependence. 
a healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Let's face it, hormones happen. Whether you're a male or female, hormones have an impact on your overall well-being. Dr. Hart brings to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel timely topics that answer your lifelong questions about hormones in men, women, and teens. Tune in to Optimal Wellness every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Optimal Wellness. Live life well. Live life long. Live life to the fullest. Many employers are concerned as well as confused by the current alphabet soup of employee benefits in the marketplace today. On The Benefits Buzz, Inside Health Insurance in America, host Sharon Alt and her expert guests clear up some of that confusion by offering answers to the difficult questions in a clear, understandable manner. Sharon is not a doctor, but a health insurance professional with over 15 years of experience. She draws on that experience to help make the apparent maze of health insurance options and procedures more easily understood and navigated. Join host Sharon all as she discusses some of the myths versus realities of health insurance in America. Hear from insurance industry insiders as well as high-ranking government officials as we peel back the layers of how health insurance has, could, and should work in America. This show is not only for the employer, but the employee, the insured, and the uninsured. The Benefits Buzz, Inside Health Insurance in America with Sharon Alt. Broadcast each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. To a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll free number is 1 866 472 5792. That number again is 1 866 472 5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Dr. Mark Green. I'm Mary Woods, your host, and we would like to talk in the rest of our time talking a little bit about some of the new treatments for opiate replacement, uh, for opiate addiction, which includes opiate replacement um, treatment, and to talk a little bit about how um, the majority of treatment providers do look to an abstinence-based uh, treatment model and we were talking earlier about the myths and, and uh, stigma around opiate replacement therapy and how that makes uh, treatment for this illness particularly challenging when um, half of the treatment providers uh, see opiate replacement therapy as a substitution and people not being um, sober unless they are truly abstinent from all medications. And you talked earlier, Dr. Green, about some people who um, just in their biology are not able to either produce enough um, natural endorphins or as a result of their opiate use, they have suppressed their um, 
their endorphine system to the point where they can no longer manufacture enough opiate, natural occurring opiates, to even feel normal. So in light of that, um, could you speak a little bit about current treatment opiate replacement therapy? Sure, sure. Um, just a couple of, couple of data on these uh, abstinence-based treatments. For opiate dependency, it's terribly dismal. So, um, you know, roughly 20% of people who, at best, at best, 20% of people who enter abstinence-based treatments for opiate dependency um, manage um, to remain drug-free after one year, as compared to 80% at least um, who remain abstinent or um, considerably curtailed drug use after one year in methadone clinics. So the rates of recovery are dramatically different. Um, the... Um, and the other thing that I'd say is that it's not just the depletion of the endorphins, which is a difficult, but difficulty, but the ramping up, up of the stress systems. And unfortunately, um, and there are other things that ramp up stress systems, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, um, anxiety disorders, panic disorders, depression. All of these also really ramp up those stress systems. Um, and so even if you taste opiates for the first time um, with those conditions, if you've got those conditions, you're much more likely to find them soothing and feel right and um, succumb to a loss of control. And similarly, if you... Similarly, just having an opiate addiction puts you at higher risk for suffering those disorders and conditions and traumas and rapes and, um, beat and, tra- and other physical and emotional trauma so that those two really interact. So to have um, a treatment which just relies entirely either on abstinence or on medications alone is foolhardy. Um, and obviously, you're not going to get the outcomes um, that, you're thinking, that you're aiming for. One of the things I particularly like about Westbridge is that when we think about outcomes, we're really thinking about the personal recovery of individuals. Um, you know, we're not going for being drug-free or crushing all psychotic symptoms. We're looking for functional outcomes, reintegration with family and community, living productive lives, which might include work or education, and a personal sense of achievement and pride in your existence. And you can't hope to get that kind of um, person-centered recovery um, with either abstinence or medication alone. So this isn't really new directions, but essential to good treatment, you need the application of psychosocial treatments. And good methadone clinics, um, particularly if they have more funding, um, can do that. They often have dedicated staff, but underfunded methadone programs um, don't. They have very high turnover. They can't, they can't hope to provide the kind of thoughtful treatment for people with very complex difficulties and challenges. Um, the, um, and irrespective of the kind of therapy that you apply, whether it's self-help groups, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, family-based treatment, um, you, more treatment, more therapy leads to better outcomes. Um, and there's a fairly linear relationship there. 
um, and different horses for different courses. People require different types of treatment and flexibility is, is essential. I must move on a little bit to Suboxone. Um, Suboxone is buprenorphine combined with naloxone. Um, and buprenorphine is very similar to methadone, but it doesn't cause the full brightness, the full effect um, of euphoria and high that you can get from methadone if you're, unless you develop tolerance, which everyone with a, with a heroin or other opioid dependency has. Um, so the doses tend to be... Um, so so buprenorphine can be very helpful, um, probably as helpful as moderate-dose methadone, probably not as helpful as high-dose methadone for people with very high tolerances or just people with slightly different neurobiologies. Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine with naloxone, which is not absorbed into the um, body if used if you take the pill sublingually, that means dissolving it under the tongue for a few minutes. It just passes through the GI tract and is lost. But if you crush the drug um, and try and inject it, then that naloxone can potentially lead to an aversive reaction, um, especially if the person's been using other opioids like Oxycontin or... Um, Vicodin recently. So that uh, that gave the government some confidence um, to allow a bit more deregulation, well, considerably more deregulation of opioid replacement treatment so that now, at last, um, instead of going to a clinic, you can be treated properly um, by a physician or a treatment team um, that suits you and can provide more comprehensive therapies um, in the in the dignity of a office space instead of in a clinic in a bad part of town, um, and this has really revolutionised um, the treatment of opioid replacement uh, of uh, the treatment of people with opiate addictions. Um, and if only the same had been allowed for methadone many years ago. The, so now many people want to move on to Suboxone. It's difficult to transition from methadone to Suboxone. It's a physically um, painful with, um, procedure um, for some as you have to go down on the dose of methadone. Uh, and other important advances um, include heroin replacement. So in many countries... Um, Heroin is now prescribed in safe settings um, instead of um, people having to procure it illegally on the streets. And the outcomes seem to be pretty good there. So the importance is bringing it into the medical establishment, bringing it into a treatment um, context instead of driving it out and having it associated with all the stigmatizing aspects of poverty and crime um, that has riddled um, the history of treatment of addictions for so long. Thank you, um, Dr. Green, for this very fast hour on opiate uh, replacement therapy and opiate addiction. Um, it, we are taping today's show. If you have any questions for Dr. Green, you can email him at mgreen at westbridge.org. Once again, mgreen at westbridge.org. If you have any questions about opiate addiction, opiate replacement therapy, or addiction and mental health in general, um, 
he'd be more than happy to respond to your question. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for giving up this hour of your um, time. And You're welcome. Thank you, Mary. We will hopefully, um, our listeners will tune in next week when we're going to um, be talking about musicians in recovery and the treatment of musicians and uh, the challenges they face when they go back to work. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.